0: So Harrison is on vacation, and uh, uh, I'm trying to do all the different parts this morning, and hopefully, or this afternoon, uh, and so hopefully it goes s- seamlessly. Uh, we're going to continue our sermon series on the minor prophets. Last week, we were in uh, Amos, Amos 9, and today we're going to be looking at Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 3, and so if you have a device, go ahead and turn there, or if you have a um, electronic or if you have a Bible you can look there, or it's gonna be on the screen as well. Zephaniah was a prophet who did ministry during the time of Josiah, who was a king of Judah uh, when Judah was the only kingdom left because the northern kingdom of Israel had been exiled and taken away by the Assyrians and Judah was all alone. sandwiched between the Assyrians to the north and the Egyptians to the south and their country had shrunk from a huge empire at the time of David and Sol- Solomon. To a tiny kingdom that was just basically Jerusalem and a couple of surrounding areas. But Zephaniah spoke during the reign of uh, Josiah, who was one of the few good kings in Israel's history. He came after Manasseh and Ammon. And Manasseh and Ammon were some of the worst kings in Judah's history. They took Israel and Judah into gross, horrible, wicked pagan idolatry where they were even doing human sacrifices. And so Josiah came to the throne as a young man, and he was led by a priest and, uh, to reform Israel and Judah's worship, so that as they were trying to clean the temple, they found the book of Deuteronomy, and it led them to follow the teachings in Deuteronomy that God had called the people to worship in that way. And Zephaniah was a prophet at the time, and his book encouraged the people to follow Josiah's reforms. So the big concept in the book of Zephaniah is the day of the Lord. It's present in every chapter, and it's talked about through all three chapters. The day of the Lord was a future day where God was going to bring both judgment and blessing, both judgment and blessing. And so these concepts are present throughout the book of Zephaniah. Today, we're focusing on 3:14 to 20, which is more focused on the future blessing. Let's read together. Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast." Now I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would speak through your word, that you would strengthen, encourage, challenge and convict and comfort us. Use your word to help us, we pray, Lord God. Amen. Some aspects of Christianity can appear to contradict themselves. When we hear these two differing things at times, we can be confused. How can these two things that seem to contradict both be true? Some examples of that might be God's sovereignty and human freedom. Another example would be the Trinity. How can God be one God but exist in three persons? In Zephaniah, another thing that comes out that seems to contradict is God's hatred of sin. His judgment on the world and his love for sinful people. How can these two things exist at the same time? To many people's perspective, they can't. They seem like oil and water. They seem like they are unable to mix. And so some people say, I I can't believe in a God portrayed in the Old Testament because he's a God of vengeance, a God of wrath. And other people say, I only believe in what the New Testament portrays because it portrays God as a God of love. But the reality is, as one of my seminary professors explained, is that these things are like train tracks. They seem, they're parallel, and it seems like they're never going to be able to touch. But if you stand on train tracks, and you look off into the distance, the parallel train tracks will eventually meet and touch in the distance at the horizon. Of course, we know, and this is where the analogy breakdowns, that they don't actually touch. That's just the illusion of them going to the distance. But that's how these apparently contradictory Christian beliefs are reconciled. We can't fully comprehend sometimes how these things that seem so contradictory are both true. And for God's judgment and his love and blessing, the way they meet is in the cross of Jesus Christ, which we will talk about throughout today's sermon. So Zephaniah speaks of the day of the Lord, of judgment and blessing. In 1, chapter 1, two, verse 2 and 3, Zephaniah describes cosmic judgment. He says, speaking on behalf of the Lord, he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Pretty stark judgment is declared that it will happen. The Lord, speaking through Zephaniah throughout the whole book, condemns both Israel and the surrounding nations for their sinful practices. He condemns them for their idolatry, their pagan worship, their rejection of the Lord and the rebellion against him. He condemns them for their violence against innocence, their frauds, their frauds against people, that's so much else. Zephaniah is filled with descriptions of the coming day of the Lord's judgment. But throughout, there's hints at salvation, And so we see in Zephaniah 2, three, we see him say, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And this points to a reality that all of the prophets knew. That when they declared God's judgment that was coming, it was always with the connotation of you guys see what is coming repent and so we saw that in Jonah chapter 3 when Jonah went and talked to the Ninevites he said in 40 days Nineveh will perish in 40 days Nineveh will perish what happened Nineveh repented and the Lord relented and forgave them did Jonah speak at all about that no he spoke about the coming judgment but contained within that declaration was a condition that if they repented, God would of course forgive them. So that's what's going on here in Zephaniah. And we see that, especially in our passage, if we look in verse 15, it says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. And in verse 17, it describes God as a mighty one who will save. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, the emphasis on who God is, is that he is the Lord who saves. The Lord who wants to save his people. What does that salvation ultimately lead to for God's people? We see it at the beginning of our passage in verse 14. It leads to singing, praise, rejoice, worship. In verse 14, Zephaniah commands the people of God three times to shout, uh, sorry, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The command is to sing and praise their God because he is the one who saved them. So the big idea in our passage and that we're going to focus on today is that the Lord God has saved us, so we should sing to him in praise. The Lord God has saved us, so we should sing to him in praise. To understand that better, we're going to look at three things that it reveals about who this God is and what he has saved us for. We're going to see that he saved us for a kingly protection, a fatherly delight, and a glorious reversal. So first, the kingly protection. One of the things Zephaniah wants to point out about the Lord is that he is king. He is the king of Israel and the king of all the earth. And so in verse 15, he describes the Lord as the king of Israel. In verse 17, he describes him as a mighty one who will save. The word mighty one here is a word that refers to a king or a war chief. Zephaniah wants to tell his listeners that both what God will do on their their behalf, and how they should feel as a response. And so we see in verse 15 that the Lord is portrayed as the king who has taken away all the judgments against them. There's no more judgment against their sinful rebellion that led to their exile. He's taken away all of the judgments on their sin. In verse 15 also, it says that he is the king who has taken away their enemies. He's cleared away their enemies so that there are no more who will oppose them. Zephaniah doesn't specify who these enemies are, but just asserts that... Israel, God's people, will have no more enemies at all. The removal of this judgment and these enemies is to lead to something. It's to lead to a response in God's people. It's to lead as we see in verse 15 so that they will never again fear evil. And in verse 16 Zephaniah again commands them, fear not, O Zion. So the king who has done these two specific acts is to be trusted in so that the people do not fear. Zephaniah teaches the people of God that on the future day of the Lord, God will remove all the judgment on them and deal with all of their enemies. And he will reestablish himself as the king who is in their midst, a king who is present to protect. On the future day of the Lord, the blessing of an existence without fear will finally become reality, an existence that was lost in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. And anxiety fear shame entered the world in the Old Testament the same word fear is used to describe two different realities one is fear of circumstances and fear of other people the other reality is fear of the Lord the same word is used for both and it's used a lot fear of people or circumstances displays a lack of trust in the Lord Fear of the Lord, reverent fear of the Lord, leads to trust. Completely two different responses. Zephaniah also tells them that they should not fear, but he goes further. He exhorts them in verse 16, let not your hands grow weak. You see, fear paralyzes. It causes us to hesitate. It causes us to live in inaction, to not do anything because we're afraid of what's going to happen. But God tells his people that they should be removed from this paralyzing fear so that they can walk in a way that is pleasing to him. So God saves us to live out a life under his kingly protection where we can worship in trust without fear. As I was preparing the sermon, I thought of another sermon I had heard where uh, uh, the pastor used an illustration to illustrate what it meant to trust in God. I have no idea if this story is true, so please don't come to me later and be like, that's completely, that never happened, Nathan. Um, The story goes like this. There was a circus promoter who had a a big famous circus in America, and he was looking for better performers. So he went to Europe where all the best performers at the time were. He was looking for a new tightrope walker. And he went to Paris where there was uh, supposed to be an amazing tightrope walker. And he went and watched this guy's performance. The tightrope walker was amazing. Uh, The people went wild every time he did his show. And the guy went to him and said, hey, can you please come to America and we will put on a most amazing show and everybody in America will love you and we'll both get really rich. And the tightrope walker was like, okay, sure, we'll go. They went and the promoter, the circus promoter, uh, went all around America, taking out advertisements in newspapers, telling people, this is the most amazing tightrope walker you will ever see. And then they said, come to Niagara Falls, where we're going to have a tightrope line across the falls. And this guy is going to walk across it. So the day came when all the people gathered on one side of the Niagara Falls and they had the rope set up and the guy stood up before and he said, hey, do you believe that I can walk across this tightrope? And some of the people said, yes, and other people said, no way, don't do not do that, that's crazy. He walked across it and back, no problem. He got to the other side, and then he said, hey, do you believe I can walk across it with a blindfold on? And this time everybody said, yes, of course you can, you just showed it to us, you proved us that you can. He put the blindfold on, he walked back and forth, no problem. He got a wheelbarrow up on the kind of stage that they had. He said, do you believe I can walk blindfolded across, pushing this wheelbarrow? And the people said, yeah, we, we trust you. We know you can. We believe you can do it. The performer went across and back, no problem. Came back, and then he turned to them, said, do you guys believe I can do it again? They're like, yes. He got the circus promoter up on the stage. He said, do you believe I can do it, sir? He's like, of course, I just saw you do it. What are you talking about? And the performer, the tightrope walker, said, okay, get in the wheelbarrow. Dead silence. The guy wouldn't do it. We're not unlike the circus promoter. We wanna talk all about how great our God is, how he's powerful, how he can do anything. We sing songs about it. But then in our day-to-day life, we don't get in the wheelbarrow. We don't trust that our God is able. We trust our own resources. We trust our own abilities. We trust our bank accounts. We trust our successful job. We trust so many things except for our God, who is our kingly protector. So this passage calls us to trust in him, to rely on him. Where are you not trusting our God? Where is fear and anxiety controlling you? Of course, our passage does not talk about anxiety or worry. Just like uh, so many men, we don't like to use the word fear. We don't like to use the word anger. We use other words. I'm not angry. I'm frustrated. Oh, I'm not afraid, I'm just worried. But those are all the same root. Fear, anxiety, worry have the same root in a lack of trust in our God. I personally often get anxious and worried because of the circumstances in my life. And I don't like to let that impact me, but unfortunately I do. I often wear my emotions on my face and so I'll have a facial expression and soon my wife will say oh Nathan what's going on Is something wrong oh no I'm okay but then my impatience my annoyance with the situation comes out and it becomes very apparent that nothing not everything is okay I need to submit to the Lord personally knowing that he is God that he's in control and that I'm not and I need to rest in that control his control trusting him How do we move from fear to trust we do that by identifying our fears identifying our anxieties and worries and then we confess to the lord our sin of fear our lack of trust we confess to him how we have relied on other things instead of him and then we pray that he might grow our trust see trust is like a muscle if we don't exercise it it's going to grow weak and weaker and weaker but if we exercise it, it'll grow stronger. So as we trust the Lord in smaller situations, it will grow because we will have seen Him meet so many needs in the past, and we will trust that He will be able to do it in the future. Another way to move from fear to trust is by getting to know the Lord's character better. We don't know trust. We don't. We don't trust because we think that other things are more reliable than our God. But if we read the scripture, if we read history and see the way Christians have trusted him throughout the ages, we will see that he has shown up countless times. That's why community is so important. As we turn to one another and we tell each other, this is how the Lord has come through on my behalf again and again. We strengthen one another and we encourage one another. Another way we do that is by singing, worshiping our God. The psalms are actually songs of worship that God's people would sing together. Psalm 121, one of those songs that they sing, says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you does not slumber. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. And this is difficult for us because sometimes when we're afraid, sometimes we're anxious, sometimes when we're so incredibly difficult to do anything because of the fear that paralyzes us. How can we worship in those situations? But that's when we need to worship the most. Because as we press through our fear and our anxiety and we worship, we are reminded of who God is, of what he has done, and we are strengthened to trust. And I don't just mean coming to Sunday morning and worship. I mean in your home, listening to songs, singing in your car with your family. We should be worshiping the Lord, which will encourage us to trust him more. So the first, a kingly protection. The second thing Zephaniah draws our attention to about God is that he is a father who delights in his children. Look at verse 17 with me. It's, Zephaniah uses three statements to describe this delight and l- express the love. He says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. A commentator writing on this passage, O. Palmer Robertson, said that this rapturous description of the love of God for his people is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. and I couldn't agree more. This is amazing when you really dig into it. These three f- phrases describe an incredible inner joy that our God has as he thinks about his love for his people These three phrases just pile up on top of each other to show the delight and exuberance that our God has in his people. If we look at the middle phrase, the middle line, it says, he will quiet you by his love. A better way to understand this line would be that he will be quiet over you in his love. This line is explaining that God is sitting there in quiet contemplation of the love he has for his people, of his people, that, that, that is mind-boggling to me. But it goes further. If we look at uh, the, the two outer lines, we see that the love described by God here is a love that is mutually exchanged between God and his people, between God the Redeemer and his people, the redeemed. Many of the terms used in the original command of verse 14 are present again in verse 17. Look with me. In verse 14, it says, Zion, Zion is called to sing, to the Lord. And in verse 17, God is singing over us loudly. In verse 14, Jerusalem is commanded to rejoice with all their hearts. And in verse 17, God rejoices over his people with gladness. In verse 14, God's people are commanded to exalt. And in verse 17, God is exalting over them. We see here that the same words are used on purpose to show that this is not just God loves us and that's it. No, it's a mutual love that builds upon each other. Verse 14 and verse 17 paint a picture of the future day of the Lord where we and God will have this mutual delight in one another that will just build and build and build forever with no end. This is a rich picture that is very difficult for us to wrap our heads around in the here and now because this isn't our experience too often. This is not mine. I don't feel in my heart too often that God loves me this way, and I don't. Too often feel that I love God that way. I have glimpses, I have glimmers of it, but too often I don't understand. Maybe you hesitate to picture the mighty, all-powerful God as being so filled with love that He is quiet as He thinks about it. But the Bible is filled with portrayals of God as a God of love. Exodus 34 talked. It talks about how Moses had an experience of seeing who God was, and his foundational character was revealed as one of steadfast love. The prophet Micah, writing in Micah 7, says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Our God delights in love. It fills him with joy to be a loving God. In the New Testament, there's so many passages we could point to, but one of the most familiar ones is the Apostle John writing in his first letter about how God is love. He defines God as love. So we, should, so we see that we should sing in praise to our awesome God because he is a delighted father who loves us and sings over us. As we think about this, we might picture a mom or a dad with a, a new baby just holding the child And singing it to sleep. When Hansun and I had our first son Noah, we were still missionaries in China, but due to a number of different reasons we had to go to Korea to have Noah. And we had to be there for about a month while we applied for visas, and in that month we stayed at my mother-in-law's house. And I still remember that first month as a father, how it was such an amazing experience, and still is every day an amazing experience, but it was so new and fresh. And I remember Uh, Because of a a couple of things, Noah had a really difficult time sleeping. And because of that, we would often hold him and rock him to sleep. And I still remember many (laughs) nights without sleep holding Noah and singing songs. And because we had to do that so much, we eventually ran out of songs to sing. And my wife, who is a very creative person and, and very musical, made up a song that had just this beautiful tune and was very simple in words And it just repeated over and over about how we love you, Noah. And I can't sing it because it's in Korean and none of you would understand it. But it was just a beautiful song of our love and delight in our son. And if my wife can do that, how much more can our God, who delights in us as his saved people, the passage says he sings over us, he loves us more than we can possibly comprehend what reaction does this fatherly delight that god has for you what does it stir in your heart what does it cause you to think and feel does it cause you to have joy does it comfort you does it evoke disbelief does it cause you to doubt no how could that be true we don't have a distant aloof heavenly father whom demands our obedience demands that we praise and worship him? No. We don't have an angry, disappointed, judgmental God either. No. We have a Lord in heaven who delights in each one of us, who is pleased with each one of us. He sings over us and contemplates each one of us in his love. This is very different than your typical American mindset. Your typical American mindset is performance driven, It's a performance mentality. Our worth, our value is based on our success. It's based on how good our grades are, how well we do on the sports team. It's based on if we get the promotion. So many other things that we think determine our value and worth. And we unfortunately translate that to our relationship with God too often. We think that just like my job is determined about how well I do, so my relationship with God is determined by how well I do. But that is not the case. God's love is unconditional. It's extended to us not based on what we do. It's extended to us based on what Christ has done. It's extended to us based on the fact that Jesus died in our place, took our sins on his shoulders, and gave us his perfect life and righteousness. If we see the depths of God's great love for us, a love where he delights in us as his children, how can we not praise him and live in grateful obedience every day of our lives? The third and final point that I want to point out here of what Zephaniah shows is how there's a glorious reversal that comes about by the Lord who saves us. In this passage, we see how the Lord will reverse all of the brokenness, sin, and shame That each one of us has if we think back to genesis 1 and 2 god created adam and eve in his image for an intimate relationship where they had honor dignity and glory even but in genesis 3 adam and eve sinned and fell and as a result they were ashamed and they tried to cover their nakedness and this passage speaks a lot about shame but first in verse 15 and 17 we see how zephaniah describes the lord your god in your midst that's to remind them that just as God dwelled with them with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden intimately. God will once again dwell with his people in their midst. Verses 18 to 20 abruptly shift from Zephaniah speaking to the Lord himself speaking. It goes from Zephaniah saying things to a first person uh, pronoun. The Lord starts talking to them. He talks about the sorrows and brokenness related with sin and judgment and how he will remove that from them. Verse 18, we read, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festivals so that you will no longer suffer reproach. This might be a little confusing to us, but what he's talking about here is that in the Old Testament, God's people was called to celebrate festivals to remember what happened in the Exodus. The picture here is of God's people in shame because of their exile where they can no longer do the festivals and honor their God who saved them. But God says, I will gather you together and I will remove your reproach, your shame. In verse 19, he goes on and he says, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcasts. These three statements are pointing to the exile that God's people experienced from the promised land. At the point that Zephaniah is speaking, this is a distant future reality because they were still in Judah, but it was something that was coming because of their sinful rebellion. The people were going to be in a foreign land. They would be oppressed by foreign kings. They would be outcast from the land that God had given to their ancestors because of their pagan worship, because of their rejection of who God was. They would be homeless. They would be in complete shame because the nations mocked them and mocked Yahweh as a God who could not even protect them. That exile was a direct result of their sinful idolatry. But God says he will gather them back. He will restore them and reverse their, uh, their suffering. In verse 19 and 20, it goes on. He says, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. The Lord speaks of removing their shame, the shame that is a result of sin. And he's going to replace it with glory, honor, and dignity. The word renown here is actually the same word as the word for name. And uh, this word has some significance throughout the, the Bible, specifically in Genesis 12, one through three, God promises to make Abraham's name great so that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. The Lord is connecting what he's doing in restoring the people back to that original promise. And we see that it realized in John 1, where Jesus talk, or John talking about Jesus says, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's how our shame is removed. So in this verse, the Lord speaks to Zephaniah's listeners, telling them how he's going to remove their shame and restore them and reverse their shame into glory. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. Sin has horrifically twisted our God's good creation so that we, each one of us, know what shame is. But we have a future hope That we can look forward to a future hope where god is going to reverse that and do away with shame forever the shame of our brokenness and our sin it's not just the shame of our own sin that we suffer god's people throughout the ages have suffered reproach and dishonor for following him in zephaniah 3 we see that as god deals with israel's enemies and oppressors but the reality is that throughout history god's people have not been honored for following God because the world does not honor God. Our world does not honor him or want to follow him. And so of course, at times we as his followers will be looked down upon and mocked for thinking the way we do. We have a sure and certain hope that our God will come back and restore all things the way it should be. And that should influence our daily life. It should influence our worship because we don't live without hope. We live with a certain future reality. So in conclusion, Zephaniah seems to have a contradiction between judgment and blessing. How can a God who hates sin so much also be a God who has such love that he's pictured as a father singing over his child? That reality comes together at the cross where Jesus, our great savior, took the judgment on us that the whole universe deserved took the judgment for each one of our individual sins so that we could experience that fatherly delight, that kingly protection, and that glorious reversal. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much that in Jesus Christ, you have taken away our shame. You've taken away the brokenness and the sin that we have. You have restored us to a right relationship with you, and you have provided us protection as our king and you delight in us as a father. We thank you, Lord, that you have restored us and redeemed us. You have saved us, and so now we can praise you all the days of our lives. We pray, Father God, that we would go out from here encouraged and strengthened, ready to love those around us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.